911, what's your emergency? Welcome to Life Beyond the Sirens podcast with Brett, Tim, and Stu. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Stories and advice from frontline workers. Today we're joined by Captain Richard McDougall, a Canadian Forces pilot as well as a Canadian snowbird. Uh, he's here today to tell us the story of uh, his crash that occurred on May 17th, 2020, during an event called Operation Inspiration in Kamloops, BC, uh, which was an event originally put on to raise the morale during the early days of COVID. Uh, so I'll let Rich introduce himself yeah, and yeah. Uh, tell his story. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came yeah. from, where you are now. Uh, my name is uh, Rich McDougall. I'm a pilot in the Canadian Forces, captain as a rank and with uh, the Snowbirds as Snowbird 11 from Moncton, New Brunswick, currently in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, where the Snowbirds are based. Cool. So I guess like before we get into the uh, the big event, um, like what got you into the military? Like why planes? Like can you yeah, tell us the yeah. process of like how somebody gets to where you are now? Because it's a pretty elite. Well, a whole lot of uh, Microsoft Flight Sim uh, at home and, and uh, you know, I, I, I always wanted to be a pilot since I was like six years old, 10 years old. So yeah. I was kind of just that annoying kid that would just point up to be like that's a airbus 321 300 because come on i gotta get groceries let's go (laughs) yeah so always had an interest in uh aviation i knew i wanted to be like an airline pilot or something like that one day i was also really interested in military type flying like fast jets and things like that i joined the air cadet program which kind of is a good lead into uh a career in the canadian forces Okay. Like when was that? Was that like high school or? Yeah. So uh, even middle school, like I joined when I was 12 or 13, did six or seven years in that program where they just teach you a lot about the military, teach a lot about aviation. They bring you flying. I got uh, a glider pilot license uh, out of it and I got a private license scholarship out of it. So I, through the cadet program, started my career in aviation. Like I had my license before. Yeah. Like I could fly aircraft before I could legally drive a car, basically. <laughs> Whoa, uh, that's sick. So I was all yeah, because isn't like the pilot process like t- like so many hours of flying and like crazy, like you know, tenuous. It is, yeah. It uh, and it really depends what kind of career path you take, and either of any of the career paths are um, labor intensive, long hours, and a whole lot of fun. Because at the end of the day, you like the work that you're doing. So. so you go from flying in the Air Cadets, the gliders. Do you have to go to the Royal Canadian College? Is that how you become a uh, commissioned officer? And then you go on to whatever your flight training is? That's, uh, that's one of the options. That's the main option. There's other entry programs. You can just get your degree on your own first if you want. Uh, you need a degree to be an officer and you need to be an officer to be a pilot in the Canadian Forces. So uh, I tried to join right out of high school and uh, just uh, through various delays with the recruiting system, uh, it took me a couple of years to get in. So I was already in second year of university when paperwork finally all went through. So I was then uh, entered into their ROTP program, they called it, uh, regular officer training program where basically they just uh, said, okay, finish your degree where you started it, which was the University of Moncton. 
my hometown. You do your boot camp during the summer. So I did two summers of boot camp training in the woods and fun stuff that everybody has to do when they join. Uh, and then the third summer, uh, I started flying uh, phase one, which is like a 30 hour course mm-hmm. on a engine propeller. Like 30 hours of actual flying? Of actual flying, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a long time to accumulate that, right? Yeah, it was like a May to August kind of course. Yeah, it barely gives you a private license, but it's kind of just to see, like, can you take off and land? Can you mm-hmm. do aerobatics safely and all that kind of stuff? So it's just a, your initial assessment. Is this like a like a difficult, like, is there a high, like, dropout rate or failure rate? Or is it kind of like entryway and then it gets more difficult as you climb the ladder? There can be, yeah. Like, I think there was 20... 20 or so, 2022 20, on our course. And I think six to eight of us failed. Oh, um, wow. I think that was a really high rate because uh, I think a few of them uh, grieved it and were recourse kind of thing. But I think that's yeah, normal for 10, 10%, 20% uh, uh, difficulty on the course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. so, so you go through all this training, you pass the courses and stuff. What do you start on like a fixed wing, a rotary aircraft? Like, or, or are you going right to the C-130 Herx? So the next phase, uh, so the way that it works, as soon as you finish your degree and you finish phase one, then you're put into the, the queue uh, to start your phase two training on the Harvard aircraft, the the CT-156 Herbert II. Um, so that's like a, it's a turboprop aircraft. Um, and that's the aircraft that replaced the Tudor, uh, which I fly now, because um, the Tudor is the training jet for the Air Force. So uh, it was a bit of a 15 month wait to, to start that program. So I worked at the Rescue Coordination Center in Trenton, Ontario. And that's where a bulk of my uh, recording in Toronto kind of happened. So I'm sure we'll get to that later. But a lot of new stuff happened during that period. Then you start course on the on the Harbor too, and it's it's a pretty high performance turboprop. You know, it has two ejection seats. It flies like a little like a little jet, and it, you go through all the different phases. How many G's are you pulling in this thing? Is it like a face peeler when you like get going? Or- yeah. You can have students, uh, you can pass out on this thing. So it'll do seven G's. Oh and uh, you have that much bank account. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, for these podcasts, you know. You never- <laughs> so like what is the physical effects of seven G's on the body? Well, it, if you're not G straining, you're, you're going to pass out. That's not like the pilot suit that I see everybody wearing that like forces blood back up to the core of your body and to your brain. G strings. No, they're a little thin. <laughs> so that's the G suit. So the G suit definitely, okay. uh, but you, you the G suit, you have to G strain. So, um, the Harvard at the time didn't have a G suit. It does now. But even when I came back as an instructor, we still didn't have G suits on the Harvard. They put you through when you're an instructor on that aircraft, they put you through the centrifuge training in Toronto. So it's like, it's like this big room that they spin you around in and wait for you to pass out. Do you not just get so sick in that? Yeah. Spinning yeah. In circles. So it's like the G straining. Is that like the videos I've seen of people like they're doing this weird breathing? Like they're just, you know, like holding one in and trying to find a bathroom somewhere. Just like, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what it, like 
what is the, the purpose of that? Just like trying to keep internal pressure? Like, yeah, it's to try to keep the blood from pooling in your lower extremities. So if you, you know, flex your leg muscles, flex your core, you know, do the G straining kind of breathing. It just keeps all of the blood pressure from your heart to get to your brain. So it just keeps the blood in your brain for you to. So like when you're, when you're flying, like we've talked about this before on the podcast of just like sometimes moments you're just training kicks in. Have you just like accidentally hit it too hard in the jet and you're like, Oh shit, I got to do the G strain to keep this going. Like, yes and no, it depends if you're flying or not. So, uh, when you're pulling G a lot more intuitive it's like you're you're starting to pull back you start to feel the g you're in control you know when to you know the harder you pull the more you pull so it's kind of like you know what you can take if you're a passenger in the back guaranteed you're always gonna g strain at the wrong time you'll either be late so you'll be behind the curve so you're trying to catch up and uh, or you could be early and just sort of hold your breath and then pass out at so you go on after all that training, what's, what's the first aircraft that you're flying? Are you other than your, your tutor there, your training one, what's like your first uh, deploy or not deployment, but your first like station, I guess. So first station for me was the, uh, the C-130, the Hercules, mm-hmm. um, to get there though, after phase two on the Harvard, that's where you get selected for what you're going to fly in the forces. So. Um, it has to do really with how well you do on course, but it's really just the needs of the forces, what what cockpits need to be filled at the time. Mm-hmm. So you either get streamed fighter jet, uh, the jet stream, or multi-engine. So that's anything uh, like a big Hercules or Airbus type aircraft or helicopter. So does everyone kind of want the jet or is it like people go in and want like a helicopter or is it just like, please jet, please jet, please jet, jumbo, j- damn it. <laughs> It goes away. I think a lot of courses, you'll have a, a big portion of your students that want jet. And by the time the course is over, they're like, no, I'm good. I'll, I'm happy to fly something different. And then some courses, everybody wants multi-engine because uh, it's a different kind of flying. And a lot of people like the idea that it helps with potentially your career after the forces. Uh, oh, yeah, true. That would like relate to airlines, right? Yeah, exactly. Wanted to fly jets. So that was my preference right off the bat, but I'm very fortunate to be selected multi. That's what got me onto the phase three course, flying the King Air aircraft uh, for a few hours and then posted to uh, to Winnipeg to 435 squadron. And what is the that? C-130. The C-130, is that a... So it's a, it's a four-engine uh, cargo plane. Seen it in a lot of movies, like the big door opens in the back, People parachutes um, jump out of it. Exactly. Like you can put a Jeep or like a small tank in the back, carry troops around. And So how do you transition from that role into getting into the snowbirds? Mm-hmm. Uh, the next step after that would be, so to fly for the snowbirds, you, uh, the requirements seem to change every couple of years, but you need a thousand hours uh, flying time and you need a, an ejection seat tour. So you have to, uh, like my Hercules tour uh, job would have been uh, a non-ejection seat tour. So you either have to be a fighter pilot uh, or an instructor at the school to, okay. to qualify. I was posted to to the school here in Moose Jaw and uh, flew to Harvard as an instructor for a couple of years. And uh, from there is when you, you know, you're co-located with the Snowbirds. So you get uh, 
everyone in the forces has the opportunity to try out. But uh, when you're across the street, uh, the pull is a little stronger. So right. that's what got me applying. Is that like a highly sought after, like the snowbird thing? Like, is it like the best of the best? It can be. Yeah. I think a lot of people do. A lot of people are interested in, in applying. Right now, our Air Force is, uh, you know, every community is hurting for personnel. It's not even pilots, uh, maintainers. Every, uh, every job, uh, we're short, short on personnel. So a lot of these communities are not willing to give up a pilot to try out for the snowbirds. Um, so right now, it's even difficult for people to be given the opportunity to, to join the squadron mm. or to do a tryout. So when you're on the snowbirds, that that's your job. You're not flying the Hercs anymore. You're not doing training or anything other than your training for your routines. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, you're flying that aircraft only. And, uh, you know, you're on the road from May until October. You do a personnel changeover. If someone's done with the team in October, um, you'll get the new pilots to fill, uh, to fill their spot. And it takes from November until April to train the new team up. So it's a year round uh, cycle. It's uh, it's never ending. Is like the routine always the same or do you guys change it every year? Every year is different, but there are certain signature maneuvers that you're always going to see come back. So uh, okay, some maneuvers uh, will go away. Some old maneuvers will come back and generally maybe the order of the maneuvers will change and uh, the music. So it's kind of like a, it's a different show every year. Right. Okay. Do you find that it, when you're flying those those same routines for a whole season, do you find it gets a little repetitive at all, or is it still super exciting every time you're doing it? When you're getting to go up in the in, like with the rest of the squad and and fly around, is that still exciting, or does it lose a bit of its a, I guess yeah, a bit of its uh, razzle dazzle. Yeah, razzle dazzle would be the the right term. <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think it does get repetitive. Uh, okay. I think the razzle is always there (laughs) (laughs) well they're zipping around and g's doing flips i don't think that really gets old we're always every flight has a a debrief that's potentially twice as long as the actual flight we record every uh show every practice that we do and we analyze it you know frame by frame we'll debrief every error so we're always making the show better trying to make the show better after every single show so I think we get a certain satisfaction from making the show, uh, you know, a tighter show, a cleaner presentation yeah. uh, for the crowd. So by the end of the season, it's uh, I think we pride ourselves in having a, a better show. Just analyzing game film. I respect yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bring it back to, to the event that happened. And so May 16th, you guys have a good show. You guys complete uh, in Kamloops a, a successful show. Um, the next day you take off that morning. Uh, are you just able to kind of bring us to that point and what was going through your head? What just bring us through your routine and what happened? Sure. Yeah. Can I, uh, it might paint a bit, a better picture if I go back like three and a half weeks. Yeah. Whatever you need to do. Yeah. Like everyone else in the country, everyone else in the world, that mid, uh, March timeframe is when the we all kind of shut down, you know, all the stores closed. Uh, we all were, we all found ourselves at home for a few weeks. Oh, like COVID. Yeah. Right. 
a complete COVID lockdown right. for, I, I think, six or seven weeks. You know, we were very much in the routine of, yeah, this is COVID now. You're at home. We're doing work from home. We're doing Zoom meetings and whatnot. We kind of had this expectation of, you know, once we start flying again, there'll be a bit of a transition of like, okay, we'll, we'll give you a week notice, two notice to, to get back to going back to work and going back mm-hmm. to flying. And uh, there was a mass shooting that happened in Nova Scotia that uh, during that time. Yeah. And it was decided from the prime minister's office that they wanted the snowbirds to do a flyover of Nova Scotia, you know, as a show of, of support. So we were kind of our group chat on the Sunday uh, was kind of like, okay, there's a rumor that we might be getting going soon. And uh, I think it was like Monday mid morning or by lunch, we all got a, a text saying, uh, okay, everyone's at work uh, tomorrow morning and uh, we're going to hit the road Thursday or something like that. It's like, we've been locked up for almost a couple months and it's like, boom, we've been tasked. We're going to go. Is flying, like you said, you weren't doing anything for weeks. Is it something like you get rusty at it or is it like kind of riding a bike? hundred percent. You do get rusty. You know, just flying qualification wise, we have our 30 day check. If you don't fly in 30 days, you can't fly that aircraft anymore. You have to go up with someone else, do a takeoff approach and landing. Oh, wow. Just to, you know, you're fine. You're probably fine. But for a job that you're normally doing potentially every day, a couple yeah. times a day, you you need that check. So those those rules are in place for- Makes sense, yeah. So yeah, so we're, we're at work that Tuesday, Wednesday, trying to get things sorted out, trying to plan what it is that we're doing. And on that Wednesday, I think- is when uh, we had a helicopter, a Canadian Forces Navy helicopter crash in the in the med area. And, uh, you know, a lot of the crew members or some of the crew members were also from Nova Scotia. Um, so it's like we're already out the door for a tragedy, basically, and then mm-hmm. kind of a tragedy internally, right? So right. it uh, really set the stage for what... Uh, we were going out the door for, and I think that same day, remember how uh, the prime minister would do sort of his daily briefings to the, yeah. to the country. Oh, kind yeah, of yeah. I do remember that. I, remember all that day. I think it was that day that they, he announced, yeah, the snowbirds are doing uh, a cross Canada tour. So we it kind of turned in from, from a fly past of uh, Nova Scotia for one event into a, no, you're going to fly around the whole country. You're just like, this guy's going rogue and telling everybody we're too, we haven't even practiced. <laughs> it's definitely something that uh, we supported as well. Like it's, it's something that the Blue Angels, the American Navy team and the Thunderbirds were doing as well to, to a certain degree. I don't think they're doing a cross can a cross us tour, but they were doing, you know, fly pass of certain big cities. Yeah. The, the person who was kind of bringing this up internally uh, was Jen our public affairs officer who was a passenger with me on May 17th. I remember her talking about this and I think it kind of went up the chain of command of, you know, the Americans are doing this. So, you know, we should, we have the capacity. We could, we could probably do something like this as well. So mm-hmm. I really think she had some influence in, in uh, what op inspiration was. And uh, I think she named it as well. I think she suggested the name up the chain and they, they went with, 
uh, op inspiration as the name for what we were doing. So yeah, I think that kind of sets the stage a little bit for our, our mental state and I guess the state of the country at the time. Zero to a hundred. Yeah. We make our way out uh, east. You know, we're intending to do every province. We're sitting in Greenwood, Nova Scotia for a while. You know, we do our, our Halifax and Nova Scotia fly past. We try to get ourselves to Newfoundland and we wait for a few days, but the weather's just not cooperating. So we had to uh, skip Newfoundland. Uh, and then we sort of just started making our way west from there. You know, we went to uh, the team flew to Charlottetown. Jen and I were in a jet. We flew over the Confederation Bridge. We ended up flying over Sackville, New Brunswick, where I did my cadet training. So flew over my old cadet unit, ended up landing in Moncton for a fuel stop. You know, again, it's my hometown and turns out it's uh, May 6th, which is my mom's birthday. So of course, you know, we're flying into town birthday with the whole snowbird team. So cool. You know, we make our way back to Moose Jaw. We have a uh, sort of one scheduled day off at home and then we head west Again, so we make our way to Kamloops. The weather, the weather on arrival was a little bit cloudy. And, you know, I'm sure the team uh, did some smoking formations and passes over the city. The following morning on May 17th is where uh, we had intended to do certain VFR routes, uh, you know, visual flying routes, but the weather wasn't uh, good enough that day. So we just scratched that plan and we're like, okay, we're just flying direct Comox from here. So we just waited a couple hours, continued flight planning and uh, Snowbird 10 in his own jet and myself as 11, we just took off as a two ship just after 1130. Yeah, the, the event happened right on takeoff. I guess I'll just take a breather, take a sip of water, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> take, a, take a minute. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what led us there. And um, do you mind like elaborating, like what happened? Yeah, oh, 100 percent. So we're we're taken off. So as a as a two ship, uh, if you're a formation lead, so if you're Snowbird Ten in this case, you know you're just flying you you're flying your jet, uh, knowing that you have someone on your wing. Same as mm -hmm. Snowbird One uh, do uh, with eight aircraft or ten aircraft yeah. behind mm -hmm. them. So I'm number two. So I'm I'm the wingman. I'm just flying off of Snowbird 10's uh, wing. You know, Kamloops. Uh, it's not it's not a the shortest runway. I, I think it's around six thousand feet, but uh, it's certainly not a long runway. And mm. we get to we get to the end of the runway. You know, you see the runway lights sort of just pass, just as they're passing under you. So I'm basically just over the departure end at. Uh, you know, around a hundred feet off the ground. So not very high. I just feel this gigantic, it, it felt like a car accident. I just feel this huge impact sound and feeling and, you know, your engine, it's a huge, uh, struggling spool down, uh, sound. And, you know, a bird entered our engine. Oh, wow. And, and so I didn't see the bird. Jen did and, uh, you know, said bird. So instantly I knew had I, had I not heard that, uh, you know, my reactions would have been, wouldn't have been any different, but it might've taken me an extra second or half second to analyze what, what was going on. But, 
you know, seeing what was happening and hearing her say that was just a confirmation that yes, something just went into our engine. Right. So. Is this like something like a scenario that you've trained for or like, you know, I, I don't really know much about flying. So mm-hmm. you do, you do, you always, you train for engine issues at every phase of flight and uh, you know, your response your response is basically the same given any scenario. This particular scenario really is the worst. That is the worst spot to get, you know, an engine issue. Right. Cause you're, you're gaining speed, but you're not high off the ground. So. Yeah. You know, give yourself a, give yourself a longer runway and 10 or 15 seconds in the past. Uh, if you have an engine issue, you can, you know, put the aircraft back down on the runway give yourself an extra 15, 30 seconds, and you've already gained a lot of speed, a lot of altitude. So you're at that one spot where you have nowhere to go and you have the least amount of energy that you will have had, that you will have in that flight kind of thing. So so in a scenario like that, with an engine issue, you're going to do what you can to exchange uh, your airspeed for altitude. So, uh, you know, uh, trade off your kinetic kinetic energy for potential energy, essentially, and uh, try to get as much altitude as you can. You know, get to your glide speed. The moment it happened, within half a second, I already felt, you know, a bit of a downward vector in my jet trage- trajectory. So, even before commencing the zoom. You know, your your eyes go from looking at your formation lead, which is outside the cockpit. Instantly, you're looking inside, looking at your engine instruments, seeing what's going on. And, you know, as you're doing that in your peripherals and you're looking outside, you see what's going on in front of you. The jet started, sorry, I could always see a bit of a pitch down motion. And all I could see was a bunch of roofs of houses. Oh, my God. So instantly i'm like this jet is about to plow through five houses in front of me is is what i uh saw at the time so you're zooming you're exchanging speed for altitude you know you have your your lead to the right which you've now left so you now don't know where your lead aircraft is the idea would be to go away from lead to just generate a bit of space just for safety you know so i'm already starting to aim the aircraft to the left you know i know that there's there's clear area to the left and behind me like the airfield's there so i was like i can't keep going in the area that i'm going you know seeing what i'm seeing with this neighborhood here and uh you know there's uh you go through your emergency procedures uh i got to the point of thinking well okay, well, the next thing for me to do would be, you know, the procedure on relight. I was like, there's no time for that. So I remember thinking that, but there is a, there is a, but a five second period where I still don't remember clearly or really don't remember at all. Like when I look back at the video, there's a phase of that flight that I have zero uh, recollection of. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. But uh, that leads to the point of, uh, you need you need to get out of the aircraft, so we uh, ejected. 
in this aircraft, it's not an automatic ejection. In modern aircraft, uh, as soon as either pilot ejects, both seats will, on their own time, uh, automatically be ejected. In this jet, both seats have to engage the ejection process uh, themselves. You know, looking back, both seats were ejected within like 0.35 seconds of each other as well. So, which is very similar to uh, what an automatic uh, system would do as well. Uh, Low energy, we were low altitude. Uh, We had a a severe downward vector at that point. So just that space uh, and that vector were already, you know, numbers wise, were above the altitude and the airspeed where that ejection seat and parachute uh, would work. Uh, but those numbers are designed for like a level flight. So any right. downward, vector, those numbers are not the numbers anymore. Right. So, right. Cause you're not going up, you're going like out and across. Yeah. I remember ejecting, like I remember reaching for uh, the ejection handles and I remember being out of the aircraft. So I remember being conscious of the fact that I was now outside um, I couldn't really see anything. I, all I saw was kind of blue. I was tumbling. It felt like an entire second had gone by where I was just free falling and I couldn't really feel anything attached to me. So in my mind, I was just like, okay, well, that's it. I'm just, I'm falling. It's, it's, it's fine. You know, a moment later I was like, okay, something's starting to catch. So I was like, okay, the parachute is starting to open. So a good friend of mine, Mario, who was a snowbird uh, technician in years past, also happens to be the person who trains pretty much every new pilot in the Canadian Forces on the ejection procedure and what to do after you've ejected. So I went back to, okay, what did Mario teach me? So instantly you're like, okay, look up, see if you've got a canopy, look up to see what your, your parachute's doing, confirm whatever that's doing, and then look down, see what what space you're about to land into. So I just remember, okay, look up. I didn't see a parachute, but I just sort of saw fabric, you know, going in that direction. So I was like, okay, the mechanism is starting. And then I just looked down and as I'm just, just the motion of looking down, it was just like half a second and I could just see a roof and it was just impact. So, I landed on the roof. My parachute did not have time to open into a steady state. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very fortunate that it provided a level of deceleration that that combined with, you know, hitting a roof resulted in a somehow survivable incident. I uh, so when you when you're ejecting or in in the ejection seat, you're sitting on your seat. So you're, what you're sitting on in the jet is essentially your survival pack with uh, everything you need to survive for, you know, a couple of days until you get rescued oh, wow. and sort of that includes a raft and all that stuff. So normally under perfectly normal ejection, you'd be at a thousand feet and you would make sure that you detach your seat pack so that you're not landing on it. You're not attached to it. So none of that was able to happen in my case. So I was still sitting on this like fiberglass box that was attached to me. Um, so I, I landed on my 
I landed on my butt. Just I was still in like the seated position. So I landed on my roof on my butt on the roof. So that was a pretty heavy impact. And my feet impacted after that. So another part that would have, I guess, helped in that case is that little fiberglass box uh, crushed. It made a bit of a hole in the roof. So all of those things combined, still here and able to talk about it with guy. Did you get it? Like, did you sustain any injuries? Oh, yeah. Like, it felt like I had just broken every single bone in my body. Like, I was... my whole back just felt compressed. I was just no instantly, I was like, I, I just broke my entire back and my feet were just, I was like, okay, I couldn't even like the pain was so great. I couldn't even feel, you know, what was going on, you know, and then adrenaline. Kicked in. And how much of a time window is this from like takeoff to like, you're on a roof now? 20 seconds. Whoa. The level of decision-making that has to happen so quickly in there, like, and say so when you're on the roof are you able to do anything like scream for help or were you able to get like i know you have a lot of adrenaline so you can fight through a lot yeah. of the pain or did you have to wait up there for paramedics firefighters whoever's coming to get you i couldn't move but uh instantly just the reaction is you know it's, it was uncontrollable screaming so i that was not voluntary that was like okay that's what you're going through to get through the pain as soon as I was able to catch my breath, you know, part of the part of the parachute uh, sort of draped over my head a little bit, so I couldn't see the sky anymore. But I do remember realizing, okay, I'm on a roof. So after the initial screams, I was like, okay, well, it feels good to scream. So, and I should probably just scream to you know let people know I'm here. So I just kept yelling. I remember thinking like, okay, can I, I wanted to, like, I could hear Snowbird 10's jet flying over me. So I just remember thinking, okay, can I somehow remove a bit of the parachute that's over my head right now, over my helmet. Uh, so my other initial reaction was like, okay, wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers. I was like, am I paralyzed? It's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty surreal moment. No <laughs> when you, uh, at that point, you're like, you know, <laughs> Am I going to be able to walk again? So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was like, okay, I can wiggle my fingers. So I'm, I'm good. You know? <laughs> so I didn't, I tried not to move anything, even my arms because like I can move my wrists. So I just remember like sort of pulling back the, the parachute a little bit um, just so that I could see, see the sky. And from that point on, it felt like everything just happened really oddly fast, you know, you know, it's opera inspiration. People are aware that we're in town. People are outside, mm-hmm. you know, looking for our takeoff. You know, we go down in a heavily dense uh, residential neighborhood. And uh, so, yeah, people were there instantly. instantly. Uh, right. So I had, instantly I had people on the roof with me, which were just uh, neighbors, people that lived in that neighborhood. And because this happened so close to the airfield, the team, you know, some members of the team were able to grab a van from, uh, from the FBO. And they just basically said, we're stealing your van. We're stealing your truck. And they just went to, they were able to find where the smoke was, where I was. And it felt like within two minutes, three minutes, I had two buddies with me on the roof. Wow. So having the reaction of like, 
how, how are you here? Like how, <laughs> it's like, Hey, <laughs> barely had a second to process it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the worst scenario that you could ever imagine uh, going through just happened. And it just felt like two minutes later, I had two friendly smiling faces with me um, uh, on the roof. <laughs> you know, that has an effect on you that helps, yeah. you know? Oh, for yeah. sure. So that Instantly, it was like, oh, you're going to be fine. It's like, I'm here with my buddies. I think from the moment the bird entered the engine, uh, I think 14 seconds later was the ejection sequence. And 4.1 or 4.2 seconds later, the camera shows me going past the tree line. So, wow. So, it's at 18 seconds from yeah. bird impact. Is it tough to watch the video again? Uh, I had not watched the video at all until, until the board of inquiry stuff until, you know, the investigations for flight safety all went on and they, you know, had a lot of questions on what I could remember. And, uh, and there were certain comments on the video that I was like, okay, well, I haven't seen the video. So I need to, to be able to comment on, because they were referencing things that I was like, I don't remember this, like this didn't happen. So I had to go watch the video. So that took me maybe six months. Like it was from May till November or something like that before I, but like I needed to. Yeah. yeah. The, that would be a really tough watch. Like, I don't know. While, while you were up on the roof and, and again, I can only imagine uh, obviously how emotional you are up on the roof and stuff. But like, at, mm-hmm. at what point are you thinking like what happened to your co-pilot? I think, and I was told I was kind of just asking about it right away. Cause you know, in, in my mind, I'm like, okay, well this, I was like, I'm here, whatever. Maybe the parachute didn't open well enough. I'm like, I'm still here, you know? So in my mind, I'm like, okay, well something maybe went wrong with mine, but I'm fine. Right. So I was kind of like, oh, like, is Jen okay? Like, how's Jen doing? Like, what's, what's, what's going on? Like, everything's okay, right? And uh, the guys that were on the roof with me, would you know to get there would have gone to the backyard and uh seen you know what was going on there so they would have instantly known uh so as soon as as soon as i was asking everybody was just super good about saying oh don't worry about it she's doing she's just right there she's fine don't worry about it so they were just trying to comfort me and say like don't even worry about that like you're here we're here with you let's just deal with this right now it's just like a bunch of distractions and yeah. Could you um, could you tell that the, like something was wrong or were you like oh okay good? No, just just the way that I landed too. It's it's a like a bungalow house with a, an attached sort of recessed garage. So there was one roof line of the house and then a smaller roof line of the garage where they intersected by like five or six feet. So that small little. Yep. Uh, nook between the two is exactly where I landed. So had I landed on the slope of any of the roofs, I might've rolled off. And, uh, but that exact spot made it so that I just impacted and stayed exactly there. So a bit easier to access, I guess, too. So, yeah. uh, So you guys landed very close, closely together. Yeah. Probably 30, 30 or so feet apart. Oh, wow. Have they, done any like studies on like how fast you were at impact or anything like that? 
yeah, like it's all in, or not how fast I, I was or the aircraft. Either. Yeah, both. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there were any numbers out there for what, uh, how fast we were going. I think they're, like I read the one of the reports uh, a couple days ago, and I think they talked about the different speeds the jet was going. It was nothing crazy fast, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know what speed I was going. But. So fire EMS, they all get there. They're able to kind of extricate you off the house, uh, bring you to yeah. the local hospital there or a trauma center, I assume. What's your road yeah. to recovery over the next yeah. few weeks, months, years? So... I guess I'll, maybe I'll just go back to like when EMS got there. When, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Like, it was this great big firefighter. Uh, I don't know my terms, but it was, it was the, a big ladder. There's a big ladder off yeah. of a, a truck. And I think that truck was on the main road and the ladder was just sort of strung across completely, you know, horizontal. And they walked me off that ladder sort of onto the truck, the back of the truck, then onto the ground. And, you know, I think I was telling you this this summer, like just being in a scenario like that, having your friends with you instantly right off the bat and then having two, uh, you know, having a couple frontline workers with a smiley face and just kind of being super professional, taking care of you, like they had to cut, you know, everything off, you know, I had to be put on a stretcher neck brace and everything like i was in no position to to move at all and uh it's crazy how just the positivity and just the distractions and the conversation i'm sure that's part of the training but that goes such a long way like oh, wow. you know it to this day it adds you know little asterisks or little like slightly positive moment to a horrific uh incident right yeah so Keep doing that because that's a good thing. <laughs> and I remember, I think it was cracking jokes or something too. So, uh, oh, I think, yeah, because they they cut everything off of me. Uh, so I'm just on the stretcher uh, naked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's people all around. And I think I just made the comment just before we start moving. I was like, hey, do you think I could get a blanket or something? <laughs> uh, uh, however, however, it was said, uh the guy that was there, like, okay, if you're cracking jokes, you're going to be fine. So it right, was just right. uh, but a, a few light moments here and there. And yeah. uh, so it was really just at the hospital after, you know, I remember having a moment uh, leaving the ambulance, being brought into the emergency, uh, into the ER. And uh, just that moment of you being on the stretcher and all you can see is straight up. And just that moment of going through those automatic doors, I just remember having this feeling of like, holy crap, your life's like, your life has just changed. Okay. I didn't know, I didn't know what had happened to Jen at that point. Um, but I do remember getting to a point where I suspected that some, you know, I was just thinking like, oh, I'm being brought there. Like maybe she's being brought here too. Maybe we're both yeah. going to be in the same spot together. And I think after a while of, you know, not hearing anything, <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I think I remember telling one of my primary uh, caregivers, I just kind of said, for just for the next little bit, I was like, I don't think I can handle any other bad news right now, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I was kind of going in and out of uh, consciousness, they're running mm-hmm. a bunch of tests, 
kind of just like, okay, I think I just need to, I don't know at this point what the outcome for me is going to be. Like, I don't know if I've just broken everything. I don't know if mm-hmm. like I'm going to be paralyzed. I didn't know. Um, so I remember one moment from that moment on, I was like, okay, I, I feel like I know that maybe something uh, not good has happened. Mm-hmm. And it was just probably this. So the accident happened at 1140 um, in the morning. And I think it was only around maybe seven or 8 PM that, uh, that different people from the squadron, like snowbird one came to me and I could just sort of hear in the hallway of like, does he know? Uh, so you know, I knew, and, uh, that was definitely a difficult moment for me. And, you know, I'm sure the whole thing was a difficult moment for a lot of people, but, uh, uh yeah. it, uh, and that evening as well, you know, by that time of the night, I'm, you know, meeting the doctor, meeting the specialist. And that's when the, the doctor was like, yeah, I think you're going to be fine. I think you're going to be completely fine. It's like, you've broken three vertebrae he's like you've shattered a bunch of bones in your feet but he was just like i think you're gonna make uh he's like i don't know what kind of a recovery you're gonna make but he's like i think you can make a pretty full recovery from other accidents he'd seen so you know and it's funny how even in that very moment i think one of the questions was you know do you think i'll ever be able to fly again and uh, he just right in that moment, it's like, yeah, I, I think so. It's like, I think it's possible. So, wow. you know, you go through all of those emotions, and all yeah. of those uh, scenarios in that one day. And uh, so right off the bat, you, you knew you wanted to fly again. It wasn't ever a point of anxiety or fear. No. Cause I think it's like flying is for, you know, when you're, I think a lot of pilots would have a similar answer, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, flying is your job, you know, there's more important things than your job, but it's, uh, you know, it's your passion. So, so, um, instantly I was just like, yeah, well, how does this affect me being able to do this for the rest of my life? You know, cause I feel like I could still fly for another 40 years, you know, and I wouldn't, uh, I would hate for that not to be an option. And did it hold you back at all? Like when you were able to like get there, was there like a moment of like climbing in the cockpit and you're like, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And I also feel like I should just preface that. It's like, obviously if I never was able to fly again, that is completely fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you know, since that day, it's like, I, I don't feel like, I just feel like it doesn't really make sense that I survived, you know? Um, so I'm just really happy to be here and whatever happens, uh, in the future, you know, happens for, for reason. I'm just, uh, just fortunate to have had almost three years now since the accident to recover the doctors, uh, last summer, it's probably last July is when the doctors were like, okay, you're, you're nowhere near, well enough for us to let you be the pilot again because you have to be in tip-top shape you have to have everything squared away to be given air crew medical but they're like i think we can approve you to be a passenger they were looking through their criteria of like what what would i approve a passenger for um so they did they gave me a blanket six month you know you're allowed to fly as a passenger in the jet 
So wow. I was able to, uh, to fly, you know, a, a handful of times, yeah. uh, last summer up to including like a full show practice in, in Fort St. John, you know, pulling 5g going negative 2g doing that whole thing. So I think it took three or four flights to work up to that point, but, yeah. uh, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, my first flight was with Eric uh, Temple with Snowbird 10. <laughs> it was just this surreal thing that you go up flying and it, it just felt like the right time. You know, I wasn't thinking about the accident. I wasn't scared. I wasn't thinking about ejecting or wasn't like it was just this feeling of like, okay, I'm home again, you know, I'm up, I'm yeah. up flying. So it was more peaceful than yeah. stressful. Yeah, 100%. And it, uh, it's, it still is that way. And then through all the different, uh, you know, fitness test processes to make sure you're still employable forces and all that stuff. I was granted my full flying medical back, uh, in January. So just this last oh, January, wow. I've been told you're, you're clear to fly, uh, wow. again. So, so that's good. That means I'm yeah. employable as a pilot in the Canadian forces. <laughs> and, uh, the best thing out of there was, I'm, I'm fully unrestricted. So the odds were super high that I would have a, you know, a no ejection seat restriction or a, mm-hmm. or a G restriction or, mm-hmm. you know, any one of those things exclude me from being able to fly the tutor again or, you know, be with the snowbirds. Yeah. So none of that's there. I'm good to go. And, uh, you know, we're a bit behind in our training, like we have been for the last couple of years. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not the highest priority to get retrained again. So I will fly, uh, with Snowbird 10, uh, you know, the two of us in one jet all season, but mm-hmm. as soon as we come back in October, that's when I'll be able to go through my, you know, 10 or 12 flights to get me re requalified yeah. and recurrent throughout the season. At some point, by the end of the season, I'll be flying solo in the jet again. And, and that's what I'll be doing in 2024 as well. Wow. Not, I mean, obviously not everybody's gone through like a massive, like near death experience like that with such a, you know, drastic outcome. Um, I was just kind of curious, like, has that changed your outlook on, on life and going forward? Like, obviously like it's very impressive how, like, you know, how you're, you're handling it. I, I imagine a lot of people would have some more challenges in life going forward. So I was just wondering, like, has it like, you know, renewed a sense of new lookout, like outlook on life or? Yeah, hundred percent. I don't know if I can accurately describe it, but there's a lot of stuff that maybe would have stressed me out before. Mm-hmm. It's like, why, why are you right. stressing out about that? I feel like it's been able to, uh, you know, it's a bit of a reset button on, on what's important in life. You know, not a bit of a, like it's a complete reset on, what's important in life and what uh, you should or should not be stressed out about or worry about or, or go out and do or not do, you know, I've been wanting to spend as much time with family as I can, you know, every, you know, even post accident was still full on COVID. So, you know, following all the COVID rules, you know, traveled as much as I could. And yes, I guess would be the answer to your question. (laughs) Um, the accident happens. 
And obviously, like, there's a long, like, physical recovery. You said you shattered a bunch of bones in your feet. Like, your back was all messed up. I mean, I can't even lift a vanity up the stairs without throwing my back out. So I imagine the recovery was super strenuous. But also, like, what resources were available to you for, like, mental rehabilitation? He's like, imagine going through that. Like, it's just an absolute whirlwind of emotions from moment of accident to, like, the realization setting in to, like, now the survivors guilt yeah, the, seeing seeing the road of recovery ahead as well like was there lots of resources available to you to be like boom here's a therapist like yeah the the forces uh had a bit of a part of the crisis management uh steps like they would have had a therapist uh go on site and just offer their services to anyone who was there and uh, i think that part happened first just to you know I, i'm in hospital i'm being taken care of but mm-hmm. so it ended up that that person in my last three days in hospital because i was in hospital for eight days i think i should have been in hospital for weeks but in the kamloops hospital so the last three days i had you know one-on-one session with this uh, uh therapist then basically twice a week after that for months on end. And then now I'm, you know, still seeing this, uh, this counselor virtually, uh, you know, once every, maybe once a quarter kind of thing, once every couple months, just to check in. Cause there's still always stuff to talk about, you know? Yeah, but, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So every, every resource was there, uh, right off the bat. And, uh, and were you like, yes, I, I need that right now, please. Or was it like, oh, you know what? I think that might help. I think my mental state, like never mind even my physical state. I think my mental state at the time was just like, I was just not in a very well functioning uh, oh, yeah, mental place. Yeah. So like, are you like sleeping? I remember, I, yeah, I was able to sleep. Um, you know, they put you in a lot of really good drugs. So <laughs> yeah, I but, guess. Certainly Just clicking the button. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At one point, there was a, I think midweek, maybe near the end of the week, there was a, a drum circle that was happening outside my window, basically, like just outside the hospital from a local indigenous group or organization. And uh, so as soon as I knew that morning, that that was happening that night i was like i need to see that in person i need to go outside so that was like one of the one of the first moments of like my physio my occupational therapist they were like all right well let's we got to practice so like you know they got me out of bed this was like maybe the first day that i'm walking on this like walker glider thing and yeah i was just like i need to go and we went down and i saw this drum circle thing and you know, your back's broken at the time. So it's not meant to be uh, vertical for very long. So I just remember sitting there and it's being in so much pain that I'm like seeing stars kind of thing. <laughs> but that was another, uh, you know, very healing and memorable moment uh, to know that they were offering uh, their support like that. So when I was in a hospital, Julie Payette called, our governor general at the time, Trudeau called himself. So I was able to talk to him as I'm about to be uh, sent home on, you know, his jet. So they medevaced me in one of his challengers. Oh, wow. Uh, back. You, uh, you mentioned earlier about 
doing a little bit of recording while you were <laughs> yeah. in Trenton there. Are you able to uh, give us a little background on your music? You are <laughs> my... Oh, take it away. Take it away. <laughs> Have you guys been practicing? Is this... Well, you this know, is every once in a while. <laughs> karaoke on Friday is not a big deal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've always, I've always been into music. I always like singing, sort of did all the contests growing up, like all the local idols, the Canadian idols and stuff like that. Like got to the, I was in the top 100 one year and got to oh, really? the golden Toronto, do all that oh, stuff. Yeah? And, like were, were you on the uh, show? Like go no. home. So like, yes, yeah, me. So like even in the top 100, they really kind of focus on certain people and yeah. stories to kind of follow through. And so I was not one of those people they latched on to uh, initially. So they saw me, uh, I did like a backflip or something during my audition. So they showed my backflip, but they didn't really show my singing. You got to have so. a sob story. You got to be like, I was born at a very young age. <laughs> born, born at a young age. I like it. <laughs> um, Without any clothes yeah. on my back. <laughs> Uh, a couple years later, I, I've always been a huge David Foster fan. He produced a lot of artists that I was super fans of, Michael Bublé, you know, Josh Groban. Yeah. You know, I come from a French-Canadian family, so Celine Dion's oh. always Oh, playing. absolutely. Celine and Bublé oh. are like royalty. So in my mind, I'm just like, I got to meet that guy. I got to, whatever, Tick in the box, uh, lifetime goal. If I could ever meet David Foster, I see that they have a, a star search going on for one of his fundraiser galas. So I entered and I uh, was in the finals for Moncton. And uh, so I got to meet one of his uh, ex-wives, uh, was on the panel and his daughter, um, uh, who's also was a songwriter. She wrote home for Bublé as well. Oh, wow. Um, so that was, that was a cool thing. And I won, like I ended up won, winning for Moncton. So I ended up in the, like his finals at the next show and uh, got to meet like Babyface and got to watch the show from backstage and like Natalie Cole was there. So that was like a cool uh, music experience for me. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that brought me to recording a couple little demos um, here and there, like recorded some some Buble, recorded some Josh Groban, <laughs> uh, down, you know, on karaoke tracks. And that's when I was in Toronto, where my uh, my brother was an actor there at the time, and I just asked him, I was like, "Hey, how do I? You're doing auditions all the time for acting stuff. Like, how do I?" what music stuff could I get myself into? Say, so, well, just go and like Kijiji, go on Craigslist. There's stuff everywhere looking for singers or whatever. So I just responded to a, I responded to a Craigslist ad of looking for singers for a, a boy band or a group. <laughs> I, don't remember, I don't remember the ad, but I just uh, sent a couple of my demos or like a link to my MySpace or something like that at the time. Uh, and they're like, yeah, cool. Uh, do you want to meet us at this location on like a Wednesday afternoon or whatever it was? It's Craigslist. And, like, meet uh, in this dingy basement. <laughs> yeah. They just said, okay, learn this song. Learn I'll Make Love to You. And uh, we'll meet outside. We'll just rehearse super quick. And uh, 
you know, it was, it was Kyle, it was Jack, it was Adam. And I'm just on the sidewalk. I see this car pull up. Uh, they're like, Rich, yeah, cool, get in. <laughs> and I'm like, I've never <laughs> met these guys. Before. And they're like, okay, sing. Coming from Craigslist, this is the most, this is the best outcome imaginable from how this story is progressing. <laughs> yeah, right? So they're like, okay, you sing this part, you sing this part, you sing this part. Cool. We just met. Then we walk up into Chris Perry's recording studio and who's Sean Desmond's producer and yeah. songwriter. And yeah, we just sort of popped in. He had a session going on and he was going to meet us for a few minutes and we just sang saying I'll make love to you. you just set up a mic in front and was recording it and it, then it just turned into us being there and chatting for two hours holding up his session that was going on kind of thing <laughs> and yeah it just turned into cool let's maybe we could record something and he had sent us a bunch of his demos or unfinished songs so it was like cool listen to these 12 and if anything catches your ear uh we can maybe try it out and one of them was the Sean Desmond demo uh, that wasn't, you know, it, it didn't make it onto an album, but it was just a song mm-hmm. he had recorded a demo for. And we rehearsed that and we recorded that with uh, Chris. And, and within 24 hours, he completely mixed it, finished it, sent it to Sean. And Sean was like, who the hell are these guys? What is this? Like, this is my song. Who? What a wild yeah, day. Kind of- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, so from that point on, Sean wanted to meet us. We recorded a handful of other uh, demos that he and uh, Chris and Tebe, he's a country music artist, they were all writing together. So yeah, so that was a cool bit of musical And did it like did it go, go anywhere? Like did you like form a boy band or? So we we did, like we were going for it. We wanted to... So this was all on the timeline in the 15 months that I'm waiting for my pilot training to start to go to Moose Jaw. Wow. This started, you know, I didn't know where it was. I didn't know what was possible. I didn't know where it was going. I just knew yeah. that I, um, and uh, I was like, cool, I'm leaving in March. So March is when I'm no longer in town. So that kind of lit, you know, the fire a bit to get, more stuff recorded like we had a photo shoot and everything and uh you know sean bought a house in the process and we were like okay you guys like we're you're we're gonna move all your so we were basically sean's movers uh <laughs> in the house that he's still in i can still see on his instagram that's the living room that we had uh and a really cool moment of that day that i'll uh that i always remember is that we didn't touch his studio so we moved his stuff but his, I hope Sean doesn't mind us talking about this, but his studio, we were like, okay, you're not touching any of that. Like that, he's going to move that. But he's like, do you want to hear a new song I'm working on? And he just blasted it. I was like, that is awesome. And uh, it ended up being this big hit on the radio. It was Night Like This. It was like, okay. So I heard it for the first time from oh, his studio. Cool. Oh, and, wow. and then, you know, not even just a few weeks later, I'm in Moose Jaw doing my flight tra- like my pilot training and i just hear shiver on the radio i hear night like this on the radio <laughs> yeah uh, and like you know sean and or, uh uh kyle and jack are in them in the background i was like this is the coolest what a wild uh, experience 
Would you have had an opportunity to be in the background as well if you didn't go off to to pilot school? Yeah. So the difficult part in there was that literally so days before leaving, uh, we had a showcase with a sub label of Universal and we just did our showcase and then I'm hitting the road, driving to Moose Jaw. And I think I was even halfway to Moose Jaw and they're like, yo, they want to sign us. And it's just like, oh, whoa, (laughs) okay. Bit of a fork in the road there, no pun intended. That was was a very big fork in the road where that's absolutely the outcome that I was dreaming of, but it was also happening in a way that, you know, I'm in the forces under contract, you know, the Canadian forces has paid for degree. Like I owe them now either years of service or I have to pay my whole degree back if I were to leave the forces. I mean, you could have negotiated uh, a signing bonus with this label. <laughs> you know, I was disgust. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that was in the cards. So the, the end result was that, uh, you know, I couldn't continue with the group. So they found other members to, to join the group and they re-recorded you know, all of the same songs and a, a few more that were just awesome. You know, they went through that process again. They pitched to Universal directly and, you know, they got to open for Sean uh, on tour and uh, perform together. And that was something I got to watch from a distance. And it was just really cool to, uh, yeah. to see that uh, play wow. out. When I heard of them, Backstreet Boys. No, I think the band was called the Front Street Boys. <laughs> the Front Street <laughs> <laughs> we were called the switch oh okay. was it like yeah. hard to watch were you just like damn that could have been me or were you like no sick go like go i was just super proud of him it's oh, that's uh, awesome it was- wow um w- one quick question going back to the um the, the crash um sorry to yeah. bring that back up but uh, i was just wondering like have you ever like made contact with the neighbors or anybody like that you know was involved in that and like not the forces yeah so i was able to so at the one year so the one year anniversary i was not well enough to travel so the the one year anniversary i spent uh, at home the second year anniversary was you know may of last year so that's mm-hmm. uh i was able to travel out i was like i'm not I can travel now. I was like, I'm going to Kamloops. I've not been back to Kamloops. I need to, I need to go to the airport. I need to stand at the end of that runway. I need to go see the roof that contributed to saving my life. I need to go to the house where the jet landed in the front yard. Like no one else was hurt on the ground. It's, it's a miracle. Like the jet landed in the front yard of a house and then slid forward like 10 feet Wow. And ended up catching that in front of that house on fire. And someone was on the other side of that wall uh, at the time. So it's like everything lined up in a way that, uh, that no one else was hurt. Holy. Uh, fortunately. But yeah. So I, I visited the house. So when I was in hospital, like for that eight days, yeah. I think my second round of x-rays, uh, maybe mid or end of that week, because uh, the 17th of May was on a Sunday. As I'm being wheeled out of having gotten my x-rays, someone who worked at the hospital 
uh, sort of was talking to the person behind me and said, am I allowed to, can I, can we speak? And she just uh, wanted to say that she lived in the neighborhood that the jet went down and that she saw the entire thing happen and that she was the first person to get to jet. Um, oh, wow. So at that point, you know, my day was over, her day was over. And, you know, I went back to my room and I think we just had, uh, we had a pretty good chat. And this person I was in touch with again, two years later, uh, you know, I had her number and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we arranged to meet. Um, she said she still lived in the neighborhood. She said she knew the people who live in the house. Um, she said the people who bought the house, uh, I think their kids were friends with her kids or something like that. And oh, she wow. had not been back to that house since the day that she mm-hmm. witnessed the accident. And uh, so she brought us over. And uh, as soon as I got to her house, to her driveway, her garage door was open and uh, her husband was in the garage working on something. And so he was the first person that came out, you know, shook my hand, you know, she came out and then I see, I see his shirt says Kamloops Fire Rescue on it. And I just sort of stopped. I interrupted. I was like, do you work for Kamloops Fire Rescue? He's like, yeah. He's like, I was on shift the day oh, that wow. you went down. Cruise the crew that went and got you. Um, so like, Holy, the stars were like, what, is, what is going on? Um, wow. <laughs> so all three of us and my mom went to the house, um, and uh, that was uh, important. And um, and the next day, I was able to go to uh, to the the station. Uh, to he's like my crew's gonna be on shift at this time tomorrow. If you came by, I'm sure they'd love to see it. So I got to literally shake the hand of of the guy oh, no who way. pulled me off. Yeah, wow. um, so that was huge for me. I uh, it was it was it was nice. Uh, I'm sure it meant a ton to them too. You know, closure is not the right word, but it just really meant a lot um, what they did that day. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, telling us all about your music career. Uh, (laughs) Canadian pop sensation. Yeah, the switch. (laughs) No, that was awesome. Thanks again. Uh, We really appreciate it. I know it was probably tough talking about it, but... So the one thing that I really like about this podcast is like you get to hear stories that you never would have heard from amazing people. Like, you know, we could be sitting on the same subway and I would never know that your life has gone this way and like, you know, thanks so much for showing or telling us your, your story. And like, you know, I've all the respect for you and like yeah, happy absolutely. that you uh, were able to share it with us. Well, thanks for having me on. 